I'm Nikandru Yanachi, producer of We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. As you know, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In the last two weeks, we've been featuring some of the best programs held this fall at the Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. This week, we conclude that review with a conversation with two historians about new perspectives on the American Revolution and the founding era. You'll hear from Michael Klarman, Harvard Law professor and author of the new book, The Framers' Coup, and Patrick Spiro, librarian of the American Philosophical Society and editor of the new book, The American Revolution Reborn. Here's Tom Donnelly, the Constitution Center's senior fellow in constitutional studies, to get us started. So as I said, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to try to talk about uh, uh, rethinking and refashioning uh, America's founding. And Patrick, with with that in mind, I'd, I'd love to start with you. And so just can we... Just place on the table, what, is the, what, what do you take to be the traditional narrative that mo- when most Americans think about the American Revolution, what's sort of the story that we, we, we tell ourselves about? It? Sure, I think uh, we all know this story really well. It begins in 1765 with the Stamp Act, the Stamp Act crisis, the colonies coming together for the first time to uh, announce their opposition to this imperial policy. It leads to the uh, Tea Party, the Boston Massacre, and ultimately independence. And this story is very much focused on the eastern seaports. And it also happens to be very much focused on Boston itself. And there's this emphasis on uh, Boston representing the American Revolution writ large. And I think one of the things that scholars are now trying to do is expand that narrative to look at other cities, other port cities, but also the countryside and beyond to understand why did the American Revolution happen when it did and why did the American Revolution include all these other areas as well? That's terrific. And so, Mike, just bringing in uh, your book here at the beginning, you, you, you have a, a provocative title, The, the Framers' Coup. Um, and I just love it. So why, why the selection of that particular title? And, and just more, more generally, what, what was the impetus behind uh, authoring this book? Uh, the title mostly goes to the marketing people at Oxford <laughs> University. <laughs> you spend four or five years working on a book, and the marketing people get a hold of it, and they give you 24 hours to come up with something that has fewer nouns in it. So <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to call it something else. Um, I, I had the idea about five years ago to write a short book for a series that Oxford University Press does. It's called the Inalienable Rights Series. And they didn't have a volume on the Constitution, the making of the Constitution. I had written a volume before on racial equality in American history. And they were looking for 50,000 word books, which are short books. I got interested. I made the mistake of getting interested in the primary sources. So I'd read a lot of the secondary literature on the founding. But the more I got into the primary sources, the more it occurred to me that there isn't not just there isn't simply not a small book on the founding, there isn't one book that tells the whole story. So there are lots of fabulous books on the Philadelphia Convention, like Pauline Mayer's book, or books about the Articles of Confederation, Jack Raycove, there are good books on the Bill of Rights. But nobody's tried to tell the story between two covers from the flaws in the Articles of Confederation all the way through the Philadelphia Convention, through ratification, through the Bill of Rights. So that's what I tried to do. And it really, it's, it, it's, a, it's a marvelous book, so highly suggest, uh, highly recommended to everyone. Um, I mean, I think that one of the, one of the, 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 the uh, 
issues, topics that both of you explore are you know, the degree to which the American Revolution on the one hand and the Constitution on the other hand were a product, uh, yeah, sort of the, the, a product of um, uh, you know, the, the American public's preferences versus you know, something other than that. And I think what both of you do is complicate um, uh, sort of the public opinion around both of those projects. And so, Patrick, I'd love to start with you. Um, how, how did the American public divide over the American Revolution? Sure, I think one of the lessons that you can take from the American Revolution is that um, a mobilized and motivated minority can make a huge difference. And so, uh, generally speaking, uh, John Adams is famous for saying that a third of the Americans supported the American Revolution, a third opposed, uh, and a third were in between somewhere. So that means that 60% of the population was opposed to the American Revolution. And so I think that is a lesson that uh, I take um, throughout American history, that you, when you look at uh, Abraham Lincoln received 39% of the vote, that a mobilized and motivated minority can have a huge impact on the course of American history. Excellent. And how, how did those, uh, how, if, if we're thinking about uh, cleavages in the American public, mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of demographic groups or, or, or any other cleavages you can think of, who tended to support the revolution and who tended to oppose it and who tended to be sort of neutral? Sure. Um, well, that's exactly what historians are actually starting to ask now. <laughs> and, and I think that's part of this reexamination of the American Revolution, to say that we have to look at the American Revolution as a lived experience, as an event, um, that it is multifaceted, and it doesn't have any clear answers often. So there are uh, many people who were, maybe were neutral at the beginning of the Revolution, and as war passed through it, they began to support the cause as they experienced war. But in the beginning, they were, they were opposed to it. So generally speaking, I think areas in which the war had not yet affected, they were, and especially in the countryside, farms, were largely neutral. Seaports, who were uh, affected by a lot of the imperial policies, were generally supportive of it, except for the elite who were part of kind of the imperial uh, administration or apparatus in some way. And then on the frontier, uh, those closest to Native Americans tended to be very supportive of the American Revolution, in large part because they saw the empires trying to restrain their expansion west uh, because of policies. And so you, it, it's, it's divided throughout the country. Uh, you can't say this colony supported it, this colony didn't. Every colony has its own story, uh, and that's exactly what historians are starting to look at. That's terrific. And I, it, Mike, turning to the, the Constitution itself, I mean, so... You know, if, if we're thinking of, you know, prior to Philadelphia, um, you know, who, who, who were sort of the, the, the main, main folks pushing us towards the Constitutional Convention and sort of, at that point in time, um, you know, where might the public have been on, you know, the, the, the debate between retaining the Articles of Confederation versus uh, sort of blazing out anew? So I think there's a consensus among most Americans who are thinking about things like national governance that the Articles aren't working very well. Congress doesn't have taxing power. It can only ask the states for money, and the states often decline to contribute. Congress only has the authority to requisition troops. It can't coercively raise troops. Congress makes treaties, but it has no coercive authority to enforce the treaties within the states, and the states are systematically denying uh, enforcement if they don't agree with a particular treaty provision. I think most Americans agreed that some change was needed. What happened in Philadelphia is, as Patrick was saying, a kind of spirited minority that wanted a very different system decided not to adopt incremental reform. They decided to go for a massive overhaul of the system. Uh, they'd been sent to Philadelphia to revise the articles, and they ended up scrapping the articles from day one. 
They created a different system of government. It was a shift of power from the state and local level, much more dramatically to the national level than most people anticipated or probably wanted. And along another dimension, it was also a fundamental change. So they, people like Madison, Hamilton, Washington, wanted very much to constrain popular influence on the national government. So they set up a system with very long terms in office, indirect elections, very large constituencies. That was an effort to prevent ordinary Americans from playing a very large direct role in governing themselves. The lesson they had taken from the 1780s, which was a time of severe economic turmoil in the states, was that if you had too much democracy, debtor farmers would get state legislatures to pass paper money laws and pass debt relief laws. And most of the elite framers thought those laws were irresponsible confiscation, redistribution of wealth. And they drew the lesson that direct democracy was very troubling. And they wanted to set up a system that would constrain it. That's where the idea of the framers' coup comes from. We don't have opinion polls, so we don't know exactly what ordinary Americans thought. I think probably most historians agree, roughly half the country supported the Constitution, roughly half the country opposed the Constitution. I think most Americans were actually somewhere in the middle. They thought the articles were flawed. They thought the Constitution had gone much too far in the opposite direction. They would have preferred an intermediate option, but the framers were actually quite skillful at keeping such an option off the table. Excellent. Now, Patrick, I think one of the wonderful things about uh, this, this terrific set of essays here is, is, is the degree to which um, the, the, they, 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 the, the essays themselves bring the American Revolution down to a human scale. I mean, I think we often think of it as this, you know, grand, glorious war for independence, but often forget about sort of how it affected the lives of, of everyday Americans. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, some of the stories, uh, you know, in, in the volume and sort of how the, 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 the revolution itself was disruptive or transformative? For, for everyday Americans? Sure. Uh, well, I guess there's two uh, questions in there. The first is the everyday lived experience of it, and then how did the revolution transform America? Um, and I think, uh, think about this. In 1777, Philadelphia was an occupied city. What is it like to live in an occupied city? That's what Philadelphia was. New York City itself was the headquarters of the British uh, Army and military. Uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, they were taking lists of those who were loyalists and those who weren't in their degree to loyalism or their degree to the patriot cause. What is it like to live through that experience? What's it like to be a farmer uh, in the countryside of Pennsylvania or in the Carolinas when all of a sudden you have competing British forces and American forces coming to your farm and taking your supplies that you're supposed to feed your family with? So what was the American Revolution like to, as a lived experience for everyday colonists? And that, I think, is separate from how the revolution transformed America transformed history uh, because I really think you have to go back to the documents that it produced, the Declaration of Independence and ultimately the Constitution, to really see the transformative effect of the American Revolution. I think these are two very different stories. There's the war itself, there's the coming of the revolution, and then there's its legacy. And the legacy really rests in the Declaration of Independence, uh, the principle that all men are created equal, and the Constitution, which is to say that we have a, uh, uh, a federal government and a constitution by which we are all, all, all governed by. And I think that's the transformative part. Um, those lived experiences, I think we, we move past those. And, 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 and sort of, to what degree should we as Americans think about it as, you know, from the American Revolution to the, to the Articles, to the Constitution, to the Bill of Rights, to what degree should we think of that as a sort of a continuous narrative, almost like what you get from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton versus, you know, more, more, more disjunctive? I don't. 
<laughs> so I, uh, I consider myself a historian of the American Revolution. And my specialty is studying basically 1755 to about 1785. And I study the coming of the American Revolution and the revolution itself. And I do see the Constitution as a very different uh, period, of course, informed by the revolution. But it is, I, I, I can't create a, a coherent narrative around it because the revolution does change politics. It just does change the way people behave. Um, one of the, the sheer things as a historian, when I'm looking in the 1760s, 1770s, the n amount of documents that are available are um, um, much smaller than after the American Revolution. There's this explosion of evidence and sources in newspapers. And so even looking at it historically, I, they're disconnected as a historian. You have much better and different sources available post-revolution than you do before the American Revolution. Um, I think the colonists had a different mindset. The government was different. Um, all of those factors mean that it's a, it's a different uh, Era. And one of the things I'm excited about is the new museum of the American Revolution, because now you're going to have a continuous narrative that begins with the revolution and then comes here for the Constitution and the story of that Constitution today, to, 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 to today. So. Excellent. Now, Mike, just returning to something you had said a, a bit earlier, you know, can you just talk a little bit about, uh, more about how democratic the, the Constitution was? And I, I think along two different dimensions. One is sort of connecting with, with Patrick saying, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the state constitutions of the time, but also just placing the Constitution itself in the context of other nations at the time. Uh, how do we think about how democratic the Constitution is along those dimensions? Right. So the the Constitution, so the Philadelphia Convention voting for ratifying convention delegates, the Constitution itself would have been seen as profoundly democratic vis-a-vis -vis the era. From our perspective, it doesn't look that democratic. So women didn't participate in politics. African Americans were mostly enslaved. They didn't participate. Poor people often didn't participate because you needed a certain amount of property. But from the perspective of the world, it was one of the most participatory democracies that the world had ever seen. Uh, there were states where 80 or 90 percent of adult uh, white males participated. So the Constitution in Massachusetts was ratified by delegates who'd been sent there by town meetings, and virtually everybody was enfranchised. Having said that, you have to understand the Constitution, I think, as a kind of counter-revolution against even more democratic forces that were set in motion mm -hmm. by the Revolutionary War. So take Pennsylvania as an example. Pennsylvania had the most democratic constitution adopted in the nation. It was adopted in 1776. You had annual elections. You had only a one-house legislature. There was no upper house because they didn't want an upper house constraining the will of the people. There was an incredibly weak governor, uh, no veto power in the governor. Judges only held a limited term in office. There were requirements for public meetings that the legislature meet in public, unlike the Philadelphia Convention, which sat in the State House, but ironically was closed to the public. They had requirements about laws being published that intervene elections had to give people a chance to express an opinion before a law could go into effect. The elite framers, people like Madison, Hamilton, Washington, were a little bit aghast that so much democracy had led to these debtor relief laws and paper money laws in the mid-1780s, and they wanted to move in the direction of a government that would be more constrained, uh, more independent of popular opinion, and that actually could shut down these populist forces in the states. So Madison, for example, wanted to give the federal government an absolute veto over any law passed by a state, but that turned out to be too extreme for the convention. They did write a provision, Article 1, Section 10, which bars states from adopting paper money laws, bars states from passing debtor relief laws, 
And the idea was with a national government with very long terms in office, uh, six-year senators, four-year presidents, there was nothing analogous to that in state constitutions, uh, indirect elections, legislatures pick senators, the electoral college picked the president, enormous constituencies. The original house was 65 members for the entire country. The lower house of the Massachusetts legislature had over 350 delegates. The US Congress had 65. They thought the larger the constituency, the more likely you would elect the better sort, the elite, well-educated, relatively affluent people in the community. And they thought the larger the constituency, the more independence a representative would have from constituent influence. So in a sense, they were profoundly anti-democratic. They wanted to move from the more democratic state constitutions in the direction of more elite rule because they thought that you really couldn't trust the average person in government. They thought they would redistribute property. They thought that's what had been happening. That's why Hamilton at the convention favored a lifetime tenured Senate and a lifetime tenured president. I mean, he's a monarchist, basically. <laughs> That was extreme at the convention, but it wasn't that extreme. Four delegations at one point actually vote for, voted for a lifetime tenured president because they thought property rights wouldn't be adequately protected in a more Republican form of government. Interesting. And just to take one, one quick thing, you know, we're, we're obviously, uh, as is often the case during presidential election years, uh, people often have questions about, you know, how we got the Electoral College. Right. Can you just take a beat on, on, on sort of what... <laughs> Sort of where, where, where that came from and what was the, the framers' rationale for it? So um, they, for most of the convention, they thought that the Congress would pick the president. That's the way most state constitutions worked, is the legislature picked the governor. For most of the convention, they had agreed the president would be selected by Congress for a single term of seven years. But the problem with a single term is they thought it would deprive the president of the best incentive for good behavior, which is the ability to be reelected. The problem with giving the president the ability to be reelected if he was picked by Congress is that he'd then be very dependent on Congress for his reelection. But the whole point of having an independent president was to check Congress. They were going to give the president a veto. But if the president was dependent on Congress for reelection, the president would be leery about exercising the veto. So another possibility would be direct election by the people. But there were three problems with that. First of all, they didn't trust the people with that important a task. One of my favorite quotes from the convention is George Mason, an important delegate from Virginia, saying that asking the people to choose the chief magistrate would be like referring the choice of colors to a blind man. They didn't trust the people. So that's one problem with direct election. A second problem with direct election is southern slaves wouldn't count. 40% of the South's population were slaves. They thought that those slaves ought to count in terms of increasing the South's political power in the nation. And finally, they thought if you had direct election, the small states would never have a president. This is an era of poor communication, poor transportation, and they weren't assuming the existence of political parties. So they figured people in large states would just vote for their candidate. If you came from Massachusetts, you'd vote for John Hancock. If you came from Pennsylvania, you'd vote for James Wilson. The small states would never have a president. So the electoral college system actually enabled them to compromise lots of differences. One thing is you're not going to have the president picked directly by the people. You're going to have state legislatures deciding how electors are chosen, and then they assume the electors would exercise independent judgment. 
Then they apportion the Electoral College in such a way that the South gets greater clout than they would in a direct election, and the small states have a greater opportunity to elect somebody. So the apportionment of the Electoral College, as you know, is your number of House members plus your number of senators. Now, Virginia is by far the largest state. It has 12 times the population of Delaware. In the House, there are 10 Virginia representatives, one for Delaware. But in the Electoral College, you add your senators to your House members, which means there are 12 electors from Virginia and three from Delaware. That's a four-to-one advantage rather than a 10-to-1 advantage. So the small states like that. The slave states liked it because their House members includes their number of slaves through the three-fifths rule. And there's some actually other complications worked in there. Now, the only way to defend the Electoral College today, the malapportionment, first of all, the, the indirect election no longer works that way because now we just have essentially a popular election to choose delegates except for the possibility of the faithless elector. But in terms of the malapportionment, basically what the Electoral College does is it gives voters in Wyoming four times the power of voters in California. So California has 55 electoral votes, Wyoming has three. That's about an 18 to 1 disparity, but California actually has 70 times the population of Wyoming. And unless you can provide a good account for why Wyoming voters are somehow a discriminated against minority who deserve enhanced power in the electoral college system, there probably is no good defense for it anymore. It just gives some people inflated power in choosing the president. But the Senate's subject to the same objection, and it's much more extreme. So Wyoming has the same two senators as California, but California has 70 times the population. That's just a power play by the small states in the Philadelphia Convention. They tried to just it with, justify it with fancy philosophical reasons for why the small states would be overwhelmed by the large states. But it was basically just a power play, and the small states said, we're going to walk out of the convention if you don't give us equality in the Senate. I'm sorry, that was long-winded, but it's a complicated <laughs> <laughs> very tough yeah. to do. So Patrick, again, we often think of the American Revolution as primarily a war of independence, but one of the ways in which this, your text really pushes the narrative in another direction is to get us to think of it also as America's first civil war, in a sense. Can you talk a little bit about why, why, that, why that narrative and why that, the degree to which that's true? Sure. I mean, it absolutely was a civil war for those that lived through it. In fact, people refer to it as the Civil War. We see in Boston that um, those that are supporting the American Revolution actually start to cite uh, the English Civil War as inspiration and reason for rebelling, uh, to say that this is working within a British tradition of uh, uh, revolution and overturning a government that is tyrannical. So people at the time saw it as a civil war. Um, you had loyalists being targeted uh, for their beliefs uh, by patriots. Uh, you saw patriots being targeted by loyalists in some cases as well. You saw neutrality. I mean, I think this is a sign of, of how it is a civil war. If you were neutral, you couldn't be neutral if the war was in your backyard. You, could, you had to be on one side or the other. And so you can see that the, 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 the countryside became torn apart, um, factions against factions, um, brothers, uh, family members uh, uh, torn apart, fighting each other. So I absolutely think it was a, a civil war. But uh, hearing Michael talk, I was thinking more about your re, uh, previous uh, question about the American Revolution and Constitution being differently. Michael, I don't know how you'd respond to this, but it came to mind when you were speaking. But the Declaration really is kind of about individuals about individual rights. It was about tearing down the monarchy, and you can see that expressed in all the governing documents. The executive was what they targeted. We want no executive. It has to be in the people. 
And then the Constitution is less about individuals, but more about governing and good governance. And then we have the Bill of Rights as a way to kind of get that revolution back in. I don't know how you, I came to mind while hearing you talk about electors, which was all about getting away from the people um, and getting it in the hands of the elite and the governing few. So. They definitely wanted to move in the Philadelphia Convention in the direction of a more powerful president than any state had as a governor. So only a couple of states had governors with veto power. Usually legislatures exercised the appointment power. In the Philadelphia Convention, they agreed, first of all, for a unitary executive. Uh, some, some people were proposing a plural executive. You could have three presidents elected from different parts of the country. They wanted a unitary executive. They wanted a president that would provide vigor and energy in the government. Hamilton had been a big fan all the way back to the early 1780s for creating more powerful executive figures under the Articles of Confederation. There was no executive under the Articles of Confederation. Congress was both the legislature and the executive. And they wanted to create an executive with a veto power because they thought if the Congress ever does get overrun by populist factions, the president could veto that. So they wanted a powerful executive, and that's very different from the impulse 10 years earlier, which had been to tear down executive power. Again, they're moving against the dominant thrust of the revolution by transferring power to the national level, transferring it away from the people, transferring it away, away from, the, from the legislature. They're creating lifetime tenured judges who maybe will exercise the power to strike down legislation. Excellent. Uh, so, Patrick, you know, again, with the, with the American Revolution, we often think of it as, you know, a, a, at least in the public narrative, as a battle between sort of good and evil, the, the patriots and, and the British Empire. You know, what was the, 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 the rationale for loyalism? Um, who, were, who were the loyalists, um, uh, and, and, and why, why did they sort of reject this insurgent movement? Well, uh, we're being filmed, so I hate to say this because it's going to last forever, but I might have been a loyalist. <laughs> I mean, no matter how, you, if you were born in the 1750s, 1740s, you are maturing in the wealthiest, most prosperous empire in the entire world that the world's probably ever known. It is proud of its liberties. You have a parliament. You have a monarch, but it is, uh, you know, works collaboratively with a parliament. It's unlike most other models in Europe. You have this idea of the British constitution and British liberties. And... The idea that you could throw that over, uh, over overthrow that, I, I don't know that I would go that far. Um, so why would you be a loyalist? Because you'd say, yeah, these policies are bad, but look at the empire. We have the strongest, most wealthy empire in the world. Um, and that's because of British liberties that have uh, allowed us to have economic freedom, had to have individual rights. And you know, the Stamp Act that you're asking us to pay, well, that's only to fund, I mean, the Stamp Act, it, the money that is raised from the Stamp Act is to fund uh, the military on the American frontier. None of that money is supposed to go back to Great Britain. It's simply to offset the cost of the defense of North America. And so I'd be a loyalist and I would say, well, sure, we have to pay our fair share. We have to support the militia, uh, the military on the frontiers. And we have this great trading empire and we're we've now expanded into India and other places. Why would I take this risk on this new thing that would upend everything that we've known and possibly fail? I, I mean. Why would you be a patriot? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. That's great. I mean, similar question to you, Mike. You know, again, we we, we revere our constitution today, but what what was driving you know you know George Mason and 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 some of the the the, the folks who came out as anti-federalists opposing the constitution? 
So the, maybe the principal anti-federalist charge against the Constitution is that you're going to create an aristocracy. Uh, they think you're transferring pay, pay power away from ordinary people. They don't like the idea that you're going to have six-year terms for senators, four-year terms for presidents. They don't like the idea that there's perpetual eligibility for re-election. Uh, they don't like the fact that you've deprived people of the ability to instruct their representatives, to recall their representatives. They think there should be mandatory rotation in office. Uh, they're worried that the elite is going to perform, is going to uh, constitute an aristocratic cabal, and that the people no longer will be able to govern themselves. They're worried about taxes, so in the same way that the revolution in some sense is about Americans not wanting to pay what the British would regard as the Americans' fair share of taxes to support the military that protects them, Constitution in substantial degree is a fight over taxation. So the Federalists say, you know, you've been forced to pay these heavy regressive taxes at the state level, but if you ratify the Constitution, the federal government is going to take over the import duties. The import duties will fund the national debt. Maybe the federal government will assume the state debt, and we're going to cut taxes. You're not going to have to pay these hated taxes on land, taxes on heads. So your tax rate's going to go down, which in fact is what happened in the 1790s under Alexander Hamilton's policies. The anti-federalists are saying, if you vote for the Constitution, they're going to raise your taxes. There's going to be a swarm of revenue collectors across the land like the locusts of old and they're going to be they're going to have to raise money to fund this inefficient federal government which is going to have all the trappings of royalty so to a large extent they were fighting over who you could trust to reduce your taxes now, that's not all of it I mean but that's a significant part they're fighting over farmers 90% of Americans are connected with farms and the Federalists are saying to the farmers if you give Congress the ability to regulate international commerce, we're going to pry open the markets of Europe. One of the problems under the Articles is Britain and France were shutting the United States out of the carrying trade, the lucrative carrying trade, and they were shutting the United States producers out of aspects of their empires where they couldn't produce, where they couldn't get the goods anywhere but from the United States. So if you know, they're, they're, uh, they're buying fish from uh, Newfoundland rather than from New England once the United States is no longer part of the British Empire. So one of the Federalist main arguments is farmers, you should support this because we're now going to pry open European markets and the value of your produce and the value of your land will go up. On the other hand, the anti-federalists are saying to the farmers, you know, state legislatures have been very responsive. They've saved you from foreclosure of your land by passing debt relief, by passing paper money laws, which are essentially just land banks lending farmers money so they can monetize the wealth that's in their land so they can pay their taxes so they don't have to get foreclosed upon. That's going to be shut off by the Constitution. You're now going to have these people, the federal government is going to be distant, it's going to be remote from your concerns. They're not going to allow you to get any more debt relief. So they're fighting over interests. Both sides have interests, and that's what they're fighting over. The idea that it's sort of dispassionate political philosophizing, that's not how this actually was, that's not how the debate was conducted. It's probably not the best way to think about how the debate actually was structured. People were fighting over interests. And if we were thinking of, of, of sort of translating some of, some of those lessons about the founding into you know, what we'd want our school children to learn, what would, what would be some of the things that you would draw out of what you've learned in writing this book that would be sort of important to transmit to the next generation of Americans? So politics can be a noble enterprise. I think some of the most talented Americans at the time went into public service, and I, I doubt if that's equally true today. I think politics has become a very different sort of 
um, very different sort of enterprise. And I, you know, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, Governor Morris, George Mason, these are among the brightest, most public-spirited people of the era. And they thought George Mason hated to leave home. He hated to travel away from uh, Fairfax, Virginia, and yet he showed up in Philadelphia. It was probably the only time in his life he ever left Virginia, but he thought he had an obligation. George Washington wasn't sure whether he should go. He thought he had retired from public life. He decided that the country needed him. He was going to go to Philadelphia. So the idea of public service by the most talented and most virtuous people, I, you know, we shouldn't think of them. There, there's this old explanation by Charles Beard written 100 years ago that the framers were mostly lining their pockets. They were holders of government securities, and they basically wanted a federal government that could raise taxes to pay off the government debt at face value, and they would enrich themselves. That's not the right way to think about it. They're not trying to make a buck. They have a vision of what is good government and good economic policy. That vision comes from their status as elite, fairly well-off, fairly well-educated people. There is a big difference of opinion between elites and non-elites about what the best way to do things is. But these are incredibly talented, incredibly virtuous, public-spirited people. I think that's a useful lesson to take away. We need more people like that going into government. Excellent. Patrick, similar question to you. I mean, part, part of, of, of what I take your project to be is, is you know, trying to, to draw out new narratives from the American Revolution. If, again, we're looking to translate it to lessons for our school children in the next generation, what, what, what might be some of the, the, the main uh, things that you want to draw out from, from this new scholarship? Well, I guess it would depend on the age of the student that I'm talking to or that is uh, taking the course, because I, I think there is a real need for and use for that traditional narrative that uh, I talked about in the mm -hmm. beginning, the Stamp Act. Uh, the imperial crisis in the seaports, the, uh, the Tea Party, and the coming of the American Revolution that way. It's, it's, it's a very well-known, clear narrative, and I think that that is still important in uh, public education. But I also think that as uh, students mature and get older, they have to start confronting different issues, issues that challenge that narrative. And that's one of the things that I, this book does and that uh, my, my own book does, which is look at the coming of the American Revolution on the American frontier. And what I argue in, in that uh, other book is that there's two revolutions. There's the revolution we know in the seaport, and then on the American frontier, the frontiersmen are, there, I found all these rebellions like the Stamp Act, like the Tea Party, um, and, but their, their animus is aimed at Indians and defense policies and overturning those policies, targeting Native Americans. And this is a very different story. It complicates that, that more well-known narrative. So I think getting these other stories to show that America, uh, it was always a very diverse and divisive place, um, has a place in, in, the, in the education system. At the same time, we always have to remember that traditional narrative uh, and, and not forget it. So. Yeah, and I, I think one other thing that, that's drawn out in the essays is the degree to which you know, we need to think about the American Revolution just not just as this glorious thing, but as a war. Yeah. That, that in fact it was, it was violent and bloody. And can you just talk a little bit about the, the, that, that part of the human toll? Well, that, that is one of the things that actually in the introduction to this I try I, and say is that one of the things this volume shows is that the American Revolution was an extraordinarily messy affair. I mean, this is a global war. There are battles fought in Europe, on, in uh, uh, the Caribbean, and in North America. And so we can't really, we shouldn't want to embrace a single narrative to something that was extraordinarily complex. There are political ideas, there are events that are happening on the ground, and then there are all these diplomatic intrigues happening in Europe. And to construct one single and coherent narrative would actually undermine the grandeur of the American Revolution as an event. That's terrific. And, and I'm, I'm just beginning to sort through the great questions from the audience here. Um, and I'll, I'll kick off one uh, uh, to you, Mike. 
Uh, the panels discussed domestic concerns leading to the convention, paper money, debt relief. Did foreign affairs help lead to the convention and the Constitution's ratification? Yes. Uh, Federalists and anti-Federalists often had very different views. So a lot of the framers, again, people like Madison and Hamilton, thought the United States was always going to be subject to possible invasion and war. They thought it was important. That's how they defended the taxing power. The Constitution gives Congress essentially unlimited taxing power compared to the Articles where Congress had no taxing power. The Constitution gives Congress essentially unlimited military power. You can raise an army, you can raise a navy, you can call the state militia into service. They thought the United States needed to be able to raise taxes because the way to fund a war was you needed to be able to borrow money and nobody would lend you money unless you had a reliable taxing power so that eventually you could pay off the debt. The anti-federalists tended to respond that they thought it was much less likely the United States would be invaded. They weren't that interested in the United States playing a large international role. They didn't think there was necessarily the need for a navy. So to some extent, it was about different visions of the country, different perceptions about how at risk the country was. Uh, they, they argued that federalists thought if you didn't have a constitution, the country was going to fall apart. There would be two or three different confederacies. If you had two or three different confederacies on the same continent, they would constantly be at war with each other. If they're constantly at war with each other, you need strong governments. You're going to end up with sort of dictatorial monarchical governments rather than republics. And the anti-federalists said, you know, you're crazy. You're just making that stuff up. You know, we could peacefully devolve into separate confederacies. There's no particular reason to think we'd always be at war with each other. So one thing that they differed over, just as in ordinary politics, one side was exaggerating the threat because they needed to defend radical reform. So they exaggerated the threat of foreign invasion and domestic uh, controversy. The other side, which was saying we don't need dramatic change, they were saying you're dramatically exaggerating the risk of a foreign war. Excellent. And so this one's to you, Patrick. Uh, you talk about the effect of the occupation and revolution on everyday colonists. Does this sense of everyday including, include all colonists, including women, the poor, non-Christians, and non-whites? Absolutely, and that's one of the things that this book uh, does do. Um, it studies uh, families that are torn apart uh, by the American Revolution. In Philadelphia itself, there was this, uh, there was this grand ball held called the uh, I'm blanking on its title, but there was this ball held, and uh, this is an opportunity for women in Philadelphia to come out and uh, uh, participate in this ball at the same time, were they loyalists, were they patriots, or were they being pressured to be a part of this British uh, affair? One of the most um, uh, untold stories, I think, of the American Revolution happened during the occupation. It's called the Quaker Exiles. Has anybody here heard of the Quaker Exiles? I see one hand here, two hands, three hands. Four or five, we're growing now, but <laughs> this is Philadelphia. So, um, uh, but, but so one of the things that happened is that uh, a, a group of uh, uh, radical militiamen supported by the Pennsylvania government with actually Charles Wilson Peel, the famous uh, artist involved in this uh, targeting, uh, targeted the wealthiest Quakers in Philadelphia and a, and a bunch of others that are very active in the meeting who had been pacifists, but they then were suspected of being quasi-loyalist and they were arrested. Uh, the writ of habeas corpus was suspended. They were brought to the Freemasons um, uh, 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 building in Philadelphia. And then they were shipped to Winchester, Virginia, where they spent several months basically interned. And the women, uh, the wives of some of these uh, uh, Quakers petitioned George Washington and others to free them. And eventually Washington supported their cause and the Continental Army freed them and they were uh, ushered back into Philadelphia 
but this is an incredible story that cuts across uh, all of those lines. It's not just about colonists, it's not, not just about patriots, it's about all of the people and how the American Revolution affected them. Native Americans, I mean, that, the, the uh, events on the frontier were, Indians were at the core of that story. And that is a story that needs to be told. One of the uh, articles in here looks at the way uh, slavery was treated in the South. And what uh, this uh, author shows is that, in fact, the enslaved, uh, the patriots, actually use this as an opportunity to capture slaves from the loyalists uh, who had owned large plantations. So they simply transferred that property into patriot hands. And so this, that is exactly the narrative we're trying to tell, that the American Revolution is extraordinarily diverse. It is multifaceted. And you really can't uh, get a single, simple way to summarize all that happened in that period of time. That's terrific. Um, and this is for you, Mike. Uh, if perhaps a majority of the electorate was unhappy with the Constitution, uh, how did it pass? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> the first thing to note is it's not inevitable that it would pass. Um, a couple of states voted against ratification at first, North Carolina, Rhode Island. New Hampshire Convention was going to vote against, but the Federalists definitely managed to adjourn it. And in a bunch of states, it was incredibly close. So in New York, the vote was 30 to 27 in favor. In Virginia, it was 89 to 79 in favor. In Massachusetts, it was 187 to 168. Those are three of the five largest states, and if one or two of them had rejected the Constitution, uh, there's a very good chance the Union couldn't have been successful. The Federalists had some advantages. Um, you could even say the system was rigged a little bit in the Federalist direction, if you were so inclined to use that term. Uh, <laughs> One advantage was actually the media, the press. Uh, there were about 90 newspapers in the country at the time. Only 12 of them were willing to publicize any significant amount of the opponent's literature, the anti-federalist literature. Cities were published entirely, uh, sorry, newspapers were published entirely in cities for obvious economic reasons, even though 90% of Americans lived outside of cities. And often the subscribers and the advertisers uh, who are overwhelmingly supportive of ratification, they would threaten to withhold their subscriptions and advertising if a newspaper publisher dared to publish anti-federalist essays. So there was some of that going on in Pennsylvania. So they had on their side the media almost entirely was supportive of the Federalists. In some states, the anti-federalists could barely get their opinions heard. Uh, in some states, there was malapportionment, especially in South Carolina. So as population moved west, legislatures would often resist redistributing power because people generally are not very altruistic in politics. People started on the eastern seaboard, they moved west, but the legislatures didn't reapportion themselves. The South Carolina ratifying convention was apportioned the same way as the South Carolina legislature. 20% of whites along the seaboard who are overwhelmingly supportive of the Constitution, and these are often the wealthiest slave owners, the wealthiest people in the country, literally, uh, those 20% elected 60% of the delegates to the ratifying convention. And even though most historians agree that South Carolina, if there had been a referendum, would have voted no because so much of the population had moved west and there was strong opposition to the Constitution in the west, the convention in South Carolina voted two to one in favor. So that was another factor. 
in most states, the elite, the well-educated, the lawyers, doctors, clergymen, bankers, large merchants, they overwhelmingly supported ratification. Virginia was the one exception. The elite was divided down the middle in Virginia. But what that meant was, in ratifying conventions, if people showed up with open minds, the Federalists had an enormous oratorical advantage. So the backwoods farmers couldn't quote Cicero in the original Latin. They were often intimidated out of speaking in the presence of their better educated, more oratorically gifted adversaries. So the Federalists had another advantage there. And finally, the Federalists created some of their own luck. Article 7 of the Constitution specifies that once nine states have ratified, the Constitution goes into operation. Now, that contrasts with the Articles, where you needed to get all 13 states to ratify any amendments. Now, under the Constitution, nine states could put it into operation, but they could only bind themselves. But you have to think about what the pressure would be on on the remaining four states. Once nine states had ratified, there's a new nation. If you choose not to go along, and some of the states like Rhode Island and North Carolina held out for a while, you're going to be denied federal military protection. You might be subjected to trade discrimination like you're a foreign country, and Congress was actually threatening North Carolina and Rhode Island with trade tariffs. You're going to be cut out of important decisions made by the first Congress, like where to situate the national capital, whether to amend the Constitution. So the last four states end up being pressured. So once nine states have decided, that ends up being the end of the game. And most of the states that were most resistant came late. And if they had gone earlier, they might very well have rejected ratification. But because the, this, the issue had already been resolved by the time it got to them, they just fell in line. So it was very fortuitous that it was ratified. It easily could have come out the other way. And they just had some built-in advantages. Their opponents made some miscalculations. Mike, I was wondering if I could just comment on that. One of the other, other things I thought helped the Federalists immensely is the fact that it was a yes or no vote. Yes. Right? Yes. The, the question wasn't to the ratifying uh, uh, conventions, do we keep the articles and amend it? Do we keep the article? You know, what do we do? It's do you support the Constitution or not? And that yes or no really, I think, helped the Federalists uh, immensely. That's critically important. So the Federalists understood most of the country right. thought the articles needed to be reformed. Theirs is the only alternative in, 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 in town. Most Americans would have preferred something in between. The articles are flawed. The Constitution moves very far in a nationalist and anti-populist direction. Most Americans probably would have preferred a point in the middle of the spectrum. The Federalists desperately tried to give them an all-or-nothing choice because they realized most Americans would have preferred something that was not what the Federalists were giving them. Now, there are actually a couple procedural mechanisms whereby you might have gotten something in the middle, and the Federalists ridiculed those and tried to keep those off the table. So you could have had a second convention, right? The Constitution was written in private. It was a surprise. It's not what people expected. Now there's been a national debate on it. Now you could elect new delegates, send them to a new convention, and let them come up with something closer to the intermediate position most people favor. Or you could have ratification conditioned on antecedent amendments. So rather than do what the Federalists are promising, which is ratify this Constitution and we'll give you some amendments down the road, the Anti-Federalists said, no, let's ratify conditional on amendments being adopted first because we don't believe your promises about what we're going to get down the road. 
the Federalists made legal arguments and they made policy arguments against both of those alternatives. But I think the real reason they rejected the alternatives is they knew that if you had a second convention or if you had antecedent amendments, you were going to water down the document that they had drafted in Philadelphia, and that's the document they wanted. So all or nothing was incredibly important, and it's, you know, how they managed to get away with that is a good question because <laughs> it, it wasn't ridiculous to say, you know, you surprised us with this and now we've talked about it and we don't love it. We'd like to change it a little bit. And the Federalists managed to convince people it was an up or down vote. They barely got away with that. That's terrific. Um, so this question, this, this is a great question, I think, in, in, in light of uh, the strengths of, of your book there, Patrick, and, and sort of its, its methodological diversity. So the question is, I'm curious about your primary sources uh, what and where are they? Diaries, letters, what else do people use to uncover the American Revolution? Great. Uh, so I think the, the first stories of the American Revolution were really um, told by what was printed, what was available. But what historians are now trying to do is uncover this, the hidden stories that are in archives and libraries, like the one that I oversee, the APS library. We have 13 million pages of manuscripts. It takes up 2.5 miles of shelf space. We have hidden treasures that we don't even know about. And what we are doing is we try to support scholars and historians to come in and to give new meaning uh, to these documents. And that's really what historians do. They give meaning to these old documents. And more and more, we're looking for manuscripts uh, because that's where the other stories come into play. Um, so if you're looking at uh, slavery, um, how do you get at the voice of the enslaved? It's a really hard question. You're not going to find that answer in print. You're going to have to go digging and digging and digging. And so diaries are extraordinarily uh, wonderful sources to get into the uh, everyday life of uh, colonists, patriots, loyalists. There's an incredible diary of uh, somebody named uh, James Allen, if I'm remembering correctly, at the HSP, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Here's somebody that is, uh, I would call him a Whig loyalist. He's one of these people that's in the middle. He is absolutely opposed to every imperial policy you can think of that's passed in the 1760s, Stamp Act, uh, the towns and duties, and so forth. I mean, he, he, you'd say, if you just read those years, he's a patriot. Then all of a sudden, Declaration of Independence happens, and he says, I can't, I can't support that. He goes out to a farm where he's targeted and harassed and arrested, yet at the same time that he's corresponding with John Adams because they're friends. You know, so it's, it's all these stories that are hidden in there that can give uh, you know, everyday life and perspective on, on the American Revolution. So those are the sources I like. Um, of course, there are a whole bunch of pamphlets and other material that, that other historians look at as well. So. And Mike, can you just talk about uh, some of the primary sources that you looked at in, in putting together your text? So there are these incredible documentary history collections that have been underway for 30 or 40 years. Um, there's something called the Documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution. It's been in a project that's been ongoing since about 1970. There are now 27 volumes, but it's not quite done. The 27 volumes have 400 to 500 pages apiece. Their letters, their diaries, their account books, there's every newspaper essay that they've been able to track down. And they've literally gone around the world. So some of the most interesting letters are written by the French consul in Charleston, South Carolina. These are very astute observers, and they're not participants in the debate, but they are very interested, and they're reporting back to Spain or France or England, and they've collected those. Uh, they're these great letters. John Quincy Adams just graduated from Harvard. He's 19 years old. He's apprenticing for a lawyer in Newburyport. He's writing his college friends, and John Quincy Adams, it turns out, is an avid anti-federalist. He thinks the Constitution is going to create an aristocracy. 
you know, 40 years later, somebody points out to him, isn't there an irony here? You know, you've been president of the United States, you've been a congressman. He says, yeah, you know, kids, they do crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit there at your computer. So I think about, you know, Gordon Wood is an historian who I just revere. He wrote this book, The Creation of the American Republic. It's been foundational for what everybody thinks about the founding era. It's this great intellectual history of thought in the United States, from political thought from the Revolutionary War to the Constitution. You know, he wrote this, it's published in 1969, and I think about him probably driving around in a beat-up car to hundreds of archives. I can sit at my computer and all this stuff is digitized. If you people are interested, you type in documentary history of the ratification, type in a state, it's all searchable. You type in James Madison, they're the papers of the, you know, the main founders, the Madison Papers, the Washington Papers, the Hamilton Papers. They have their own collections. They're edited by experts, so they're all these footnotes. They'll tell you what they're referring to when they make some offhand reference. It's just unbelievable, the luxury of having all this stuff. And then I, one of the many privileges of teaching in Harvard Law School is I get all these eager, talented students who want to do work, so they collect letters. Uh, they, they check my sources. Again, you know, I'm quoting a lot of stuff. They make sure I haven't butchered the quotes when I transcribe notes. It's just a luxury to have all this stuff. And it, you know, I, I didn't travel at all. It's all available on your, your laptop you know, because the University of Virginia digitized this documentary history. Can I, can I actually follow up on that, though? Because I have some worries about that. And that is that what has been digitized uh, overwhelmingly are printed sources, newspapers, pamphlets, and the papers of the founders. And that rotunda, the uh, database that Michael was talking about, is absolutely incredible for research. But that means that people, I'm worried, are going to prefer the comfort of their laptop screen or their desk to the hard archival research that I think it reveals the everyday experiences. So you're not gonna get a diary of a woman uh, on a plantation because that's not part of that elite story. Um, you still have to go to the archives, that the original sources still really matter. And I worry that historians in, in this generation going forward are gonna prefer the print over the archival. And that, that's a concern I have. I'm also worried, this is kind of the existential threat, that uh, the kids right now in uh, grade schools aren't learning cursive. So, yes. Yes. It's, it's, you know, it's true, it, you know, in, in, in 50 years, the historians of uh, that generation are not going to be able to read the original sources. They're only going to be able to read the printed sources. Cursive is going to be a foreign language. They won't be able to read their grandparents' writing. Um, so it's, a, you know, I, I, I am, I love digitization. It's what we do at the APS. I rely on it in my own work. At the same time, I have concerns. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, this, this to you, Patrick. In, in putting together your volume, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? Uh, well, there's a uh, story in here about a piece of human skin, speaking of primary sources, uh, <laughs> that uh, had become an artifact from the Sullivan campaign. And there's a young scholar that's working on a project in which she is examining the history of this piece of skin. Um, she doesn't yet have all the answers. She has questions, she has some ideas about it, but that is a totally new approach to, I think, uh, primary sources. Uh, but also, it's going to uncover a, a great story. I, we, I don't know what the whole story is going to be yet. Um, there's also somebody in here that is working on environmental history. Um, this is kind of a new field. How does the environment impact history? And what this historian is showing is that because the colonists relied so much on Great Britain for uh, most of the manufactured goods, gunpowder, was overwhelmingly provided by Great Britain. And so the colonies didn't have a uh, manufacturing base to produce saltpeter, so they couldn't fight the war. And so he details the attempts by the patriots to create a, a, a homegrown 
uh, gun uh, powder manufacturing industry. It, it is not largely successful. They import most of their stuff from Europe still. But uh, this new approach to environmental history, I think, is going to also change the way we think about the American Revolution. That's been, that was a that was a very interesting essay too. And, yeah. and so, Mike, same question to you. In, in putting together this magnificent book, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? I think the most surprising thing, we have this constitution, it still exists, it seems so important for structuring our government. The thoroughly political nature of the debate, the appeals to interests, the political maneuvering, uh, they're arguing thing about things like under the Articles of Confederation, states get to control their own import duties. Uh, New Jersey and Connecticut import most of their goods through New York. So New Jersey and Connecticut citizens are supporting the New York state government with their tax dollars. That's why New York actually doesn't want to give the import duties to the federal government. That's why New York wants to oppose ratification of the Constitution. That's part of why New Jersey and Connecticut support the Constitution. Small states support the Constitution because they got a great deal in the Senate. Virginia doesn't like the Constitution for exactly that reason. The kind of political argumentation, so they make arguments, but in a different context, the arguments just flip. So in a state where the Federalists think they're going to dominate the convention, they say, we don't need a detailed paragraph-by-paragraph -paragraph consideration. Let's just have a vote. But when the Anti-Federalists outnumber them, then they think it's important that you have a thorough examination. <laughs> in one convention, they'll say, let's adjourn it because they think they're going to lose. But in the next convention where they're going to win, they're all up in arms at the Anti-Federalist suggestions that they're going to adjourn. There's character assassination, there's dirty tricks, there are threats of violence. There are in some places people are threatening to duel over the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton is saying different things in Philadelphia than he says in the New York Convention in Poughkeepsie. And one of the other New York delegates from the Philadelphia Convention is at the Convention in Poughkeepsie. And he says to Hamilton, in Philadelphia, you wanted to destroy the states, but now you're celebrating the role of the states. And Hamilton says, I resent that, those aspersions cast on my character, people think they're going to end up in a duel in, in Poughkeepsie in the summer of 1788. They, they manipulate the accounts in newspapers, so people will quote each other, but they'll do it selectively, leaving out stuff that's antithetical to their cause. It's just like modern politics. <laughs> and I, you don't think of the Constitution that way, but it's just a thoroughgoing political debate where both sides will use whatever methods seem likely to win. <laughs> well, I think on that note, uh, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much. Again, Framers Coup, The American Revolution Reborn, and Frontier Country. Thank you so much, Patrick Spiro, Michael Clarman. Terrific talking to you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and Kevin Kilborn and edited by Jason Gregory. It was produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Please email us anytime at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. 
please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nikandro Yanachi.